Hello and welcome to the third episode of Some of Our Parts, brought to you by FTC Team Vertex number 15534. If you're unfamiliar with FTC Teams or FIRST, we definitely recommend you take a look online to see how you can get involved in your local community. I'm Eileen, your host, and I'm joined by Charles, Rhea, Brenda, and Annie for this episode. We were lucky enough to sit down with Dr. Olga Rusakovsky, who is an incredible inspiration to us on the team. Three of us actually had the amazing opportunity to attend the AI for All camps, which she co-founded. Aside from her amazing outreach, she is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science at Princeton University. She earned her PhD at Stanford University and her postdoctoral fellowship at Carnegie Mellon University. Her research is in computer vision and closely integrated with machine learning, computer-human interactions, fairness, accountability, and transparency. She has won countless awards in the field, and we are so happy to have the chance to talk with her today. Okay. I'm, I'm just back all the sense. Oh, I think you guys are doing this. This is, uh, yeah, this is very, very exciting. So we started the episode off with some background on Dr. Rusikovsky, and she told us about her journey to her career path. Uh, one of the key bits is that I would not have imagined, you know, 20 years or certainly when I was in high school, I would not have imagined that this is where I would be now. Um, so when I was in school, I, I went to math camps. I was I was the cool kid who went to math camps over the summer and I was very, very excited about math. This is a great place to include a shout out to all of the math kids out there listening. You guys have our hearts and keep loving math. Um, and so I, I came to college to sort of do to major in math. I had no doubts about my major. I sort of knew exactly what I wanted. And then I came to grad school to do research in in, um, in theoretical machine learning. So sort of the math side of, of computer science. But then it kind of, as I was going through graduate school, I, I realized that actually I'm very interested in some of the more applied questions. And so then I kind of pivoted more from the more theoretical work to the more applied computer science work to the more applied machine learning work and ended up in computer vision. Um, I always knew I wanted to teach. So when I was younger, I wanted to be a teacher. So when I was sort of in elementary school, I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. When I was in middle school, I wanted to be a middle school teacher. In high school, I wanted to be a high school teacher. Um, but sort of ultimately, I realized that I, I do like doing research and I do like teaching. And so sort of becoming a professor was sort of the natural path. Um, that being said, I definitely went through difficult times in graduate school, but I, where I definitely sort of started doubting myself and doubting my skills and doubting whether I could become a professor. And there was definitely a period of, you know, some number of years where it was just like, yeah, okay, this is not even remotely possible. I'm just not even going to think about that as a job possibility. And then somehow it still worked out like somehow, you know, my mentors and my um, uh, peers and, and sort of other folks around, they kind of convinced me to give it a try. And it turned out to be, no, I, actually, I could do it. I could become a professor. That that was, um, I think, somewhat surprising to me when it actually did happen. So here, Dr. Rysikovsky shared her passion for teaching and what it means for her. Ooh, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Sort of what is it about teaching? Um, so I think there, there's many possible answers to this. One of the one of them is just that, you know, we always try to do things that are sort of the most impactful. You know, you want to go out and you want to spend your time on things that you think will have the biggest impact. And I can't think of anything that would have a bigger impact than than teaching. Right. So so, you know, I could I could develop new 
you know, build new systems. I could, I could develop new products, but like, I don't think anything will have as much impact as I can have teaching the next generation of students to go out and develop, you know, exponentially many products and their ideas out into the world. So, so I think it's ultimately, I mean, part of this comes down to just believing that this is the highest impact thing I can do. And partially I just derive joy out of it. It's just really Mm. fun and exciting to work with younger students and sort of explain to them what I find interesting about a particular field and explain to them sort of how I see some of these concepts and the different ways to think about some of these um, concepts and kind of how to think about this field in a way that uh, encourages them and inspires them rather than, um, you know, scares them or demoralizes them or discourages them from from, um, pursuing computer science or pursuing math or that, that kind of work. Right. So as a co-founder of AI for All, can you tell us how you kind of decided to go into that direction, like an outreach direction? I mean, you mentioned your love for like educating and like being this figure, which is so inspiring to all of us. So thank you so much for like what you do for AI for All. We all had a part in that. So how did you get to that point? Yeah, so thank you so much for saying that. And, and uh, you know, AI for All is definitely, you know, my baby and definitely for, for all of the co-founders, but also for, for everybody who is sort of working at the organization. I mean, this is something that um, we all believe in very passionately. And, and, you know, I've sort of mentioned the idea of kind of doing things that have the most impact and, and AI for all kind of came out of that, of, of what can we do for this field of AI of artificial intelligence that's really going to be transformative. And there's a lot of people who are working on, you know, the next, biggest whatever model that will do bigger and better AI, but but all of that sort of pales in comparison to some of the realities of like, we don't have diverse voices represented around the table. We're building technology that is reflective of a homogeneous group of its creators. We are missing out on ideas, on perspectives. We are trying to build technology for all, but we really are not doing that because we just don't have everybody represented at the table. It's a very small subset of population who, um, and and not just a very small subset of population, but a very homogeneous, a very um, um, uh, right, very non-diverse. Sorry, I'm thinking of, of a, trying to think of a synonym for for homogeneous and, and um, not coming up with one. But but uh, it, and, and so what what. Um, if we think about sort of what is the biggest danger that's facing this field right now, I think it's I think it's that I think it's that we are uh, just losing out on different perspectives and we are uh, building things with biases in it that that we don't even realize because we don't have people asking the right questions. And so founding AI for All was kind of like, OK, what can we do to mitigate this biggest issue that's facing the field? And, and what we can do is try to find students who would be excited to come join us, to come join this field, to come join the research and the building of some of this technology and and bring their unique perspectives and questions and insights into this space. That's that's great to hear. Um, I'm wondering, how's AI for All going right now? Do you have like some cool events or, or things coming up that we'd love to hear about? You know, one of the really exciting things that's uh, happening this summer, so I've been trying to 
figure out a way to recruit high school researchers into my lab over the summer. And it took me, you know, something like five years now to, to try to figure out just the logistics of like, how do you hire a summer high school intern who is under 18? So what does it mean to have sort of minors on campus? And how do you um, make all of that happen? And we finally figured it out. So this is through the, um, this is, sorry, this is just the Princeton. So it's not, um, you know, as part, as big of a part of the national uh, organization, but we finally figured it out here. So I'm going to be recruiting one or two um, high school students to do, come do research with us over the summer. And that's going to be in addition to the um, Princeton AFL summer camp that we're running again. Uh, that's really exciting. That's a great opportunity for high schoolers. And it's it's amazing that you're working so closely with uh, with high schoolers, especially because that really like helps build, you know, from the ground up that pipeline where students feel supported to, to enter AI and especially pursue like PhD degrees or like higher education. I know like I was always intimidated by AI and I definitely would not have like now it's something that I I want to study in college. And that's something that I would not have thought before AI for all. So it's really been incredible. Um, but I'm actually that's, that's really wonderful. I'm I'm thrilled to hear that. I hope I uh-huh. hope I hope that continues. I hope you come to college, you study AI in college. I hope you find a supportive community or continue relying on the um, you know on your AI for all peers and and uh, you know the other AI for all change makers to hopefully keep that going and and um, keep up your okay. your uh, interest and your excitement in this space. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's that would be a dream. Um, so you're talking about like having diverse forces represented in AI and kind of how that plays out in um, in algorithms. So maybe could you talk a little bit about like algorithmic bias we're seeing today, as well as um, how that relates in, or compares to human bias? Yeah, so we're seeing a lot of um, sort of, well, first of all, a few years ago, I think as uh, computer vision, as AI technology started really being deployed sort of in a wider range of applications and, and, and um, really sort of consequential applications, we started seeing, um, I would say, sort of unexpected behavior, but I think it's unexpected partially because the researchers who were building the technology were not asking the right questions and when it, when they would sort of deploy this out in the um, in the real world and on people who did not necessarily look like them, on people who, um, you know, were, were actually sort of using this technology. It, it turned out that there is a number of blind spots that this technology has and a number of errors. And sort of one of the um, canonical examples and one of the first sort of very high profile examples was the work by Joy Blomwini and Tamia Gebru, who were researchers um, at, um, at the MIT Media Lab and then at, at uh, Microsoft Research at the time, who studied the accuracy of face recognition technology and sort of realized that uh, this technology works much, much better on um, lighter skinned male than it works on darker skinned females. Um, so they pointed out these uh, discrepancy in error rates in a lot of commercial face recognition systems. And that was part of the um, first works that kind of started this much, much broader conversation, both about patterns of errors in the technology and patterns of errors that tend to uh, favor members of dominant majority groups and frequently members of groups that are uh, re- overrepresented among the AI researchers themselves. And then um, also sort of sparked a number of conversations around what are appropriate and ethical and um, valid uses of, of AI technology. I think that that 
sort of spark conversations about face recognition generally? Like, is that a technology that should be used and in what context is it okay to use that technology? And partially there's, uh, you know, questions given the discrepancy in error rates of sort of like, how much does that influence the conversation? But also, even if you assume that you could equalize the error rate, sort of, are there applications where this this um, should and shouldn't be used at all? Um, and then the, this conversation has kind of deepened over the last few years, and we started talking about um, sort of things like accuracy of computer vision or AI models on, for example, um, photos from different uh, geographic regions. So we sort of moved from talking about uh, accuracy on people of different demographics, but now we're thinking about, okay, even something like I, I build the computer vision model to recognize common household objects, right? So I take a photograph of my room and I say, okay, I want, you know, a robot to operate in this space. And so I wanted to understand what all the different objects are in here from this photograph. So it turns out that even something like this, of, of the, this problem of building an, an object recognition model, it turns out that um, these systems work much better on photos taken in um, countries that are more represented among AI researchers. So they work really well on photos that are taken in the US, taken in, in Canada, taken in Australia, taken in Europe, and then fail on photos taken in um, Africa, for example. Uh, and partially this is because some of the common household objects look different. And the same uh, object may not necessarily look the same around the world. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it's, it's sort of getting us to think, okay, even this technology that seemingly does not have anything to do with demographics, right, does not have anything to, you know, seemingly like, okay, there shouldn't be a bias or fairness component there. Well, well it turns out there there kind of is. Like, there there still are, are these questions about, like, what is the, who is, like, what um, what regions are being represented in the data? And then when you deploy the system, where is it actually going to work? Um, anyways, I can talk about this for, for a very long time. This is a big, a big part of what you know, the research work that we do in my lab. And I think this is one of the very important uh, research directions right now in computer vision and in AI yeah, in general. Yeah, so one of your most famous like projects is ImageNet, right? Could you tell us a bit about what that is? Yeah, so so ImageNet is, is um, so this is the brainchild of, of Faithy Lee, who, is, who was my uh, PhD advisor. I was, mm -hmm. I was very lucky to work under her, and she's one of the co-founders of, of uh, AI for All, and she's a, she's a brilliant, brilliant mind. She um, sort of conceived of, of this idea of sort of um, pushing computer vision uh, from, so, so back in, uh, so ImageNet came out in, in 2009, and before, so ImageNet is a large-scale data set, large-scale collection of photographs uh, labeled with uh, sort of the objects that appear in the photographs. So it'll say, okay, this is, you know, a photograph of a snake. This is a photograph of a computer monitor. This is a photograph of a, um, of a mask. And back in, 2009, so the computer vision community was was working on building uh, object recognition systems on, on relatively small data sets and on a relatively small number of objects. So sort of the common data set at the time had 20 objects and the researchers were trying to figure out how do you build a system that can recognize these 20 objects. And the idea that 
Feifei and and, and uh, her collaborators at the time had was like, okay, can we scale all of this up? Can we just collect a ton of example photographs of thousands of objects? And can we use that to sort of push and guide the research towards this much more ambitious goal, much bigger goal? And it turned out to be that Yes, this is exactly what computer vision needed at the time. And this was part of what sparked uh, the transition from um, sort of the the um, different kinds, of, sort of it sparked the, the deep learning revolution, sparked the transition from uh, computer vision on, on much smaller scale data set where the focus was on building uh, kind of more and more complex models to this idea of like, we should just be data driven. We should collect a ton of data, a ton of examples, and then. Sorry, I'm I'm struggling with 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 the idea of so so, so the deep learning models that are being used on these um, uh, on this data that they are much larger models, but they're sort of less uh, constrained and less um, sort of hand engineered compared to the models we used to uh, do before. And so basically, the um, the idea is this whole field became sort of data-driven, data-centric, where you first collect a ton of examples and then you build a relatively unconstrained model that can learn from all of these examples and, uh, you know, turns out perform much better than than, um, than some of the previous models. Or anything you're excited or looking forward to in like the world of research? Yeah, absolutely. So, so we've been working on a lot of questions around bias and fairness in computer vision systems. Um, definitely thinking about how can we identify some of these biases that exist in the technology, but also how do we counteract that? Like, what are some of the interventions we can do besides bringing more diverse voices into the field, but but also from a from a technical perspective, what what we can do there? And then we've also been looking a lot at uh, interpretability and explainability of models. So trying to figure out if there are strategies to better understand what the model has learned. Um, and besides that, we're continuing to do a lot of work in um, just trying to build more accurate computer vision models, doing a lot of work on uh, video analysis as opposed to just image analysis, uh, doing a lot of work at the intersection of vision and language. So it used to be that um, sort of computer, you know, object recognition was more of like, okay, show you a photograph, tell me what, you know, is this a picture of a cat or is this a picture of a of a highlighter? Um, and now it's much more like, okay, I want to build systems that can describe the visual world in natural language, or I want to sort of really understand the deep connection between um, between the computer vision space and sort of the natural language descriptions. That's um, a very interesting, very, very complicated uh, field. What would you say is kind of a, another skill set that you also need to consider when going into a career like this? I think all of these are very important. I think everything you're mentioning is very important. And I think mm-hmm. the the thing is that I'm actually, I'm really not kidding when I say we need researchers with a diversity of perspectives and backgrounds and experiences. And to some extent, you want folks who capitalize on their unique skills and unique approaches to research. Like, for example, I work much better in a collaborative research project. Like, I love working with other people. And that was, you know, that's something I discovered during graduate school. Like, I really sort of understood how much better and how much more creative and how much more excited I am about projects that have other folks on board that we could sort of bounce ideas off of. And that that helps me both 
in terms of just coming up with 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 better ideas, but also um, it helps me not get discouraged. Like I think when I when I sort of work all by myself, I tend to you know if there's sort of one day where the project is not going well, I I, I then get discouraged. I'm like, oh my god, this you know didn't go well yesterday. It's not going to go well tomorrow. But if you're working with somebody, that helps you sort of get out of that rut and sort of keep going. And it didn't go well for you, but it went well for them. Maybe they have some some cool, exciting, you know, results that they were able to sort of debug their part of the program. And then, and then you're sort of moving forward together. Um, and so I think it's it's very important to kind of try to figure out what works for you. What's your sort of unique um, approach to this or unique set of skills that you bring to the table and capitalize on that? Um well, so AI in general, it's, it's a very interdisciplinary space and it's an opportunity to kind of combine your interests in other areas. Like, for example, if you're excited about AI and medicine, if you're excited about saving the environment, like combining that with um, some of the AI technology, if you're excited about, um, you know, social sciences and like learning about people. So there's actually a lot of very natural intersections with AI, both sort of AI applied to social science, but also some of the social science concepts applied to studying AI. Like there's just almost an endless set of possible connections and possible um, skills and interests that you can sort of bring into this space. To sort of wrap this up, I would love to ask if you could give advice to your younger self or any high school student right now, what would you give? Yeah, so it's it's a great question. I mean, I would uh, so so I I have a standard bit of like three bits of advice that I give. I don't know if yeah. if my younger self would would believe that or would would build off of that. Um, but sort of one is to really work on assembling a uh, community around yourself. So assembling sort of mentors and peers that can that can lift you up and help you keep going. Um, and this is both sort of more senior mentors that can open doors for you, but also folks that you can text in the middle of the night when you're feeling insecure or whatever, who, who can sort of help get you through that. Um, so that's the first bit of advice is this, this emphasis on sort of community and, and mentorship. Um, the second bit is to shamelessly celebrate your accomplishments. So a lot of the time, we particularly the sort of um, perfectionists uh, among us tend to feel like, okay, any accomplishment you do sort of backpedal and you say, okay, yeah, like I won this award, but really, you know, I should have won it a year ago or like, yeah, but, you know, my report wasn't as good as I would have wanted. But as much as possible, particularly when you're moving into these like very competitive, very difficult fields, there is more failure than successes. Like there is, you will stumble and you will feel, um, you will struggle a lot more than you will have those moments of successes. So as much as possible, just like celebrate those accomplishments. Like don't be, um, don't be a jerk about it to others. Like you don't have to sort of be arrogant about it, but you can, you yourself can, can allow yourself to feel pride in that, um, in, in those, in those moments of, of success. And then the third bit, which uh, I would not have uh, believed or known what to do with when I was younger, but but I think the third bit of advice is to aggressively protect your physical and mental health, which are really one and the same. Um, and that's really, really hard. That's really hard, especially in, in high school with, with all of the constraints and all of the things that you're trying to juggle and trying to balance. But as much as possible, sort of letting yourself 
off the hook, learning stress management strategies, trying to prioritize sleep, trying to uh, prioritize exercise, trying to prioritize sort of healthy eating habits. And it's, it's very, very difficult, but as much as you can sort of give yourself permission to put that first above finishing you know, one particular assignment or above sort of whatever else is going on. Um, and I, I just want to acknowledge that that's, that's really hard. It gets, it gets easier as you get older and become more in control of your schedule. Um, oh. But yeah, I do, I do want to say that as much as, mm-hmm. as much as you can. And with those wise words of advice ends the third episode of some of our parts. If you are currently a high schooler, we definitely recommend you check out the AI for All summer camps that Dr. Rusikovsky co-founded. You can find these by searching on the internet. If you'd like more information on Dr. Rusikovsky, you can also find her website. As always, thanks for listening and have a great day.